Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. There's a children's entertainment show called Blippy. This is a show that my son loves. I don't know if any kids on their way out are recognizing the name of that show. If you're familiar with it, you know that Blippy is a really high-energy guy, and he just uh, explores playgrounds and museums and other places that kids would love to go. And he does this from the vantage point of a child. So he kind of leads you through the place that he's exploring and he's crawling through the play structures and just looking at everything with amazement. And he's just constantly saying, wow, look at this. Wow, this is so cool. And, and frankly, from the perspective of a parent, it can be a little annoying. But I, I think that, um, kids love Blippi so much because they can relate to him. And, you know, when you see a kid seeing something new or experiencing something new for the first time, they just have such a sense of awe and wonder. And it comes so naturally to them. Um, I have a a home video from when I was a child. I don't actually remember this experience, but I remember watching a home video of Christmas time when I was three years old, and I received this gift of an umbrella. It was a plain black umbrella. And as a three-year-old little girl, I was looking at it going, like jaw dropped, just in awe of this umbrella. And, uh, you know, it just is funny thinking about that and the wonder we have over these simple little things as kids. And, and as Dave referenced earlier in his prayer, as adults and as we get older, you know, we can lose that sense of wonder. We can get busy or distracted. Sometimes we just don't give it the time or space uh, to see things. Sometimes we can have kind of an attitude of pride or maturity, like, you know, I'm too mature to be amazed by something. Um, we can say things like, as we get older, like, oh, I've seen it all. Um, you know, so we may not have that kind of sense of surprise or newness that children do as we come into adulthood, but we can sometimes even stifle our own sense of amazement as adults or, or maybe just not give space for it. Um, but the Christmas story is sprinkled with these uh, experiences of awe, moments when people in the story who are encountering Jesus or are encountering the miraculous are filled with wonder and amazement. So we've been tracking the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look again at that today. But So we see in that story that there were people who were amazed when Zechariah says that his child's name is John and he's able to speak again. We'll look at that a little bit more in a moment. But we also see in Luke chapter 2 that the people who, who uh, the shepherds had told what had happened, those people were amazed when they heard that they had seen baby Jesus after hearing the announcement of his birth from a host of angels. 
Um, we see in, later in chapter 2, Mary and Joseph marvel at what Simeon says about Jesus when they present him at the temple um, as a baby and when Simeon prophesies over Jesus. So this awe is kind of woven in with the joy that shines through the first coming of Christ. So today, we're picking up with this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. And uh, we've been following their story the last couple weeks. And, and we're, as we're trying to answer this question, how does a weary world rejoice? So today, we're going to be reflecting on the role of awe and consider that one way that we can experience joy in the midst of our weariness is to allow ourselves to be amazed And notice that phrasing, to allow ourselves. You know, we've talked about this a little bit already and how in the midst of our weariness and hardship, sometimes we can almost feel guilty about looking for joy or looking at things from a hopeful perspective. Or sometimes, you know, maybe we just don't want to do that. We want to kind of sit in our sorrow. And, and, you know, to an extent, that's actually okay and can be good. It's good to to weep, to lament, to cry out to God. That's, that's what this longest night service is for that's coming up this week. But it's also okay in the midst of hardship to look for God at work. And that doesn't mean that you're denying your pain or the brokenness of a situation. But when we seek out God and when we watch for his amazing grace and comfort and power, That's actually an expression of trust in an unchanging God, and it's confidence in his presence with us. So we can allow ourselves to be amazed even in the midst of our weariness. So let's go ahead and look at more of Zechariah and Elizabeth's story in Luke chapter 1 today. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, we're going to be focusing on verses 57 through 66. It says, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. In verse 58, Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now, of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth are the main characters in this story, but the intrigue of the story is bolstered by the people around them. So at the beginning of this section that we read, the family and neighbors of Zechariah and Elizabeth are rejoicing with them and God's grace in their lives. But by the end of that passage, 
the people go away realizing that this is God's work not just in the lives of this particular couple, but it's in a way that will have a much bigger effect. Now, it was part of the Jewish law and custom for their child to be circumcised and named on the eighth day, and it would be typical for the child to be given a family name. So the people around were taken aback by Elizabeth saying that his name would be John, uh, and so they asked Zechariah to confirm this, and he does. And Zechariah doesn't just say his name will be John, but he says his name is John. And so this is kind of, this is reflecting that Zechariah is not putting himself in that place of giving the name and saying he will be called, but it's an expression that he's saying his name already is John. His name has been John since the angel declared it. This is the name that God has given their son. So the people pick up on the fact that there's something special about this child, They're amazed, you know, maybe by the fact that Zechariah agreed with Elizabeth, I'm not sure. Maybe they're amazed by the fact, certainly, that Zechariah was able to speak again after this happened, and maybe in how determined, how he, uh, the way he said this. But verses 65 and 66 highlight for us that they're amazed by the fact that God is doing something unexpected. You see, God's people had been waiting for so long for the Messiah to come. And maybe some of them at this point were feeling weary, not certain if he would ever come, if there would ever be hope for their people or for for freedom from oppressive rulers. So when this happened, this, this unique experience of Zechariah not being able to speak and then affirming this untraditional name of their son, they're amazed And it gives them pause and wonder about who this child will be. What is God doing? And they're filled with hope and and wondering what God is up to. They realized that God was in their midst and he's doing something special. And this passage invites us to have the same posture in the midst of our weariness. To wonder what God is up to to pause and give space to see God at work in miraculous ways and notice his presence among us. I want us to look at another passage of scripture today that will help us unpack a little bit more of how we can live with this sense of amazement about God and what he's doing. So we're going to be in the Psalms now, Psalm 126. If you'd like to turn there, Psalms are kind of in the middle of the Bible. We'll be in number 126. And we actually heard this read a few minutes ago. This is a song of ascent. So this is a psalm that uh, God's people would have sang together as they were on their way to Jerusalem to worship. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. 
Now you can kind of feel the awe and trust in this psalm. In the first couple of verses, God's people are reflecting on the past and God's faithfulness and goodness to Israel. It may be referring to the time when Israel was able to return to Jerusalem after exile or perhaps another rescue in the history of uh, God's people. But they're celebrating God's good work in and for his people. And they have this dreamlike wonder at God's grace and power. And they're filled with joy. And the nations around them recognize God's greatness. And as they're in the present, looking back with amazement at God's grace, they're able to say, even now in verse 3, we are filled with joy. But things aren't all, you know, rosy and perfect for them even now in the present. Uh, you see, in the second half of the psalm, they're asking God to once again restore their fortunes. So the restoration that they were celebrating in verse 1 wasn't a full or final restoration, but they have a hopeful expectation for the future. They know God has already done amazing things and he will do amazing things again. So they're allowing themselves to wonder what God is up to in the midst of their current misfortune. And the image of the Negev in verse 4, it's a picture of sudden or even unexpected blessing. So the Negev is a dry region south of Jerusalem towards the Dead Sea. And it had a network of ditches in the soil from wind and rain erosion. And most of the year, it was just completely dry. But when the rains would come, they would suddenly fill to overflowing. And so seeds that had been lying dormant for a long time would suddenly germinate and sprout. So they have this, this hopeful anticipation as they look to the future and trust that God will continue to be good, that he'll surprise them with abundant blessing. So their present joy isn't a fleeting kind of joy that's just based on circumstances. It's a joy that comes from pausing and prayerfully paying attention to who God is and what he's done in the past and what he's going to do in the future. And some of us right now are in a place of longing for God's full restoration to come in our lives and in the world, aren't we? Verses 5 and 6 of that psalm talk about sowing with tears. And some of you, I know, are farmers. I am not. But you know the hard work and suffering that comes with sowing seed. So you you go out in the wind and harsh weather conditions. You're looking out at what seems like a barren wasteland, hoping the seed will take root and receive the, the necessary elements to make it grow and produce fruit. You wait for the harvest. And some of you right now are sowing with tears. You're experiencing pain. You're feeling the weight of difficult circumstances. Maybe you've invested in someone whom you love and you want them to experience fullness in Christ, but the response doesn't seem to be coming and you feel weary. Maybe you're looking at your current family situation or your work situation and you continue forward each day not knowing what will come next, but you try to hold on and trust and you can feel weary. 
Maybe you're dealing with a physical or mental condition or grief that's weighing you down and before you every day, and you keep pushing forward, but you're weary. Maybe you look at the needs around you, both physical and spiritual, in your neighborhood and community, and you're doing what you can to try to help and encourage, but the needs seem so great, and you can feel weary. Maybe you look back on a time in your life when things were thriving, but now you're in a season of tears. Our culture would tell us to get rid of this pain, to try to numb it, to eliminate any risk of getting hurt, to distance ourselves from the people who aren't serving our needs, and then just fulfill our joys by doing whatever we want that might give us those temporary moments of happiness. But what the psalmist calls sowing with tears isn't ignoring our pain, nor is it wallowing in it, but it's entrusting it to God. Our seed that we're sowing is is the suffering and emptiness and disappointment, and when we give that seed to God, when we when we sow in tears and offer that to Him. We have a hopeful expectation in these verses, a promise that God will bring a crop of joy. The harvest that he will bring is not a temporary moment of happiness, but a deep, soul-satisfying fulfillment. And it's not a harvest of just selfish prosperity and wealth or, you know, personal success, but it's a harvest of renewal and of abundant life and of reconciliation with God and others and with all of creation. Sowing our tears in him doesn't mean that our hardships now will be eliminated now, but it means that God is up to something. And we, like the people who reacted to Zechariah, we can wonder what God is doing and anticipate with hope that he's working out his rescue plan and for, the, for his people, and he's working out the restoration of the whole world. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts, puts it, that he's making the sad things come untrue. We can have joy in the midst of our weariness if we sow our tears in him if we watch for him and trust him and allow ourselves to be amazed at his work that he's done in the past and hopeful about the work he will do in the future. I was talking the other day with someone in our church who has some challenging dynamics in their family. And and there's one family member in particular who doesn't really interact much with her or when there is an interaction, it's often negative. And this woman in our church was saying that recently she had a chance to visit and have a 20-minute conversation with this family member, a good and positive conversation. And that might sound like something really small, but I'm sure that she has had some days where she was sowing with tears and praying that God would bring healing in her family. So she saw that 20-minute conversation as God at work in that relationship. And she took the time to step back and be amazed at what God was doing and to thank him for it. That's a little picture of sowing in tears and 
recognizing God's harvest of joy that he is working out. Many of you know our dear sister, Sandra Jameson, and she's shared up front, from up front before, about her chronic pain and her physical and emotional suffering, and she had been told that she would never stand up straight again. But just a few months ago, she had a procedure that fixed her back, and she wrote recently this quote, every day now, I marvel at being able to stand up. I'm sure that Sandy had days where she was sewing with tears. But in allowing herself to be amazed, Sandy is full of gratitude and joy and testifies to God's goodness and faithfulness in her life. And that's what amazement does. It's, it's a precursor to joy. It leads us to rejoicing and thanking God and it compels us to pass that blessing on to others. In Psalm 126, verse 6, which we read, the one who sows with tears comes home with songs of joy, shouts of joy. It's not something kept to ourselves, to themselves. And in the Zechariah story, we read that talk spread throughout Judea about what God was up to. So when we're amazed by something, we can't help but share that with others. So in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our struggle, let's sow our tears to God. Let's look for him and allow ourselves to be amazed, knowing that God is in our midst and he is doing something special. Let's look back and gaze at wonder at God's great gift lying in a manger. Look at the Christ child carried by a virgin with little means, born in a stable in a little town, wrapped in rags, lying under the stars which he created, the one who made us, living with us, God with skin on in the form of a baby who would become the savior of the world. How amazing. And let's look ahead and gaze in wonder at heaven joining earth once and for all. Imagine the day when we will see Jesus face to face, when his glory will be the only light, when our tears are wiped away and our suffering is no more and all things are made new. How amazing. And as we stand in awe of the beauty of Christ, Let's worship him. Let's rejoice in his unfailing love and let's declare his greatness to those around us. If it's helpful for you to have some questions for reflection and response, I want to share some of those with you now. So consider, when was the last time that you remember being in awe of something or someone? I'm not sure if you can remember that. If, if you're not sure, what can get in the way of our sense of wonder? You know, maybe we're too busy. Maybe we're not really looking for that, those amazing things. Maybe we're caught up in a, a cynical attitude. Or maybe you're just in a hard, low place and you need to ask some people around you, can you help me? Can you help me see what is God doing? What's amazing in your life right now? 
that's okay to ask for others to kind of come with you and help you see that. Second question, can you remember a past experience of God's goodness? Think about that and take a moment to be amazed by what God has done. And finally, when is it hardest to believe God will do what he says he'll do? Are you in a place right now where you're not really sure? Is it true? Will God really do what he says he'll do in bringing all things, making all things new? Is there a step of trust you can take today? What would it look like to sow your tears in God today? Let's pray. God, life is hard. There's a lot of things in our hearts and in our world that are weighing on us. And it's hard sometimes to look for the good, to see your light shining through. So please open our eyes and hearts to see you around us. Give us courage and faith to believe that you can and will bring a harvest of great joy. And when we do see how amazing you are, Lord, help us to share that with others. Help us not to keep that just to ourselves, but to declare your goodness to those around us. God, we pray that those who are struggling to see you would be able to take that step to open our eyes, to be amazed by who you are and what you have done. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.